In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? But he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the reading of God's perfect and holy word. And God's people say, Amen. Amen. All right, if you'd stay in the text, uh, Acts chapter 1. Verses 1 through 11. I'll be working through from the um, version of the, the New King James Version. I, I appreciate this opportunity to discern the desires that I have. You know, is, it, is it my desire? Is it God's desire? Is, is, uh, um, and I think that'll be clear as I uh, attempt to work through this. Uh, if, it's, if, it's a, if it is of God, I think there will be some evidence, something that I can uh, see that there is to develop. Uh, not that I, I, I'm coming here to knock it out of the park or that I'm um, very experienced at this, but that there should be some, some level of um, equipping here that God has already uh, been working with me on and that that should be evidence and that there, again, that there should be something to, to develop. I just, I'll begin in prayer and then we'll jump right into the, the text. Lord, I just thank you, Lord, for your word and the faith that it offers to those who read. And for your church, Lord, and all the, the communities of faith around the world that it has created. And I just ask, Lord, that you would allow your word to be heard and that it would be clear. And Lord, I, I even, I confess my sin, Lord, of, of nervousness, Lord, and I, I just uh, call it as, as what it is. It's just, just pride. It's just fear of man. And Lord, just, just help me in a way, Lord, that this effort this morning would uh, glorify you and that it would encourage us in our lives as Christians. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, so whether we're young or we're old, how many of us have given a gift to someone special? And, and we wanted that, that gift, without words, we wanted that gift to say, you're special. 
And parents, parents, how many of us have witnessed the excitement of our children on Christmas Eve? And how many of us have gone to bed even more excited than our children? Just at the anticipation of giving that gift that we had chosen for them. You know, when we, when we know our child, we know them in and out, we know them up and down, we know them all around, and above all, we know their heart, at least from a human perspective. With that, we have the, the ability every now and then to find that gift of a lifetime that we know could impact our child for the rest of their life. And the joy that we have as parents when we see and we watch our children using that gift it's, it's a joy. And for those of you who aren't parents yet, you'll, you'll, you'll know what I mean, and it is a joy. That, that gift that you, you poured yourself into find sometimes. I mean, it's hard to find that gift sometimes. And we have a, a similar story in our text this morning. Uh, it, it, it's a story of, truly, it's a story of unbridled love and the gift that came with it. And it's a love that overcame the world. And it is a gift whose impact continues to grow as we grow. It's a gift that gives us the ability to impact the world with the same immeasurable love that it was given with. That gift is just simply, it's the gift of God himself, God sharing himself with us. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. And I think it's, it's worth asking the question, do we, do we know what we've been given? And do we cherish the one who gave it to us? In verse 1 of our text, again we're in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And in, in the first verse there, Luke begins by encouraging Theopolis by reminding him of all that Jesus had begun both to do and to teach. And the word began here in this text, it really has a multi-directional understanding. It pulls both Luke's gospel, the first book he wrote, there's a Luke's gospel and then he wrote the book of Acts. And that word began, it's pulling those both together. The, the last chapter in the, in the Luke's gospel and the, and the first chapter in his book of Acts, it's the same event. What, Acts picks up where, where Luke's gospel left off. And it's the same event. And together they give us a, a fuller picture of what Jesus is talking about. About who he is and who we are. And what life as a Christian should look like. The word, also, the word began as also speaking of Jesus' authority and role. And rule. And, and pointing back... To Luke's gospel for what Jesus has done and an authority that he did it with. It's Jesus himself in the gospel of John who said, I have the authority to lay down my life. And if I lay down my life, I have the authority to pick it back up. And that is authority. Then, after that, then after pointing back to the gospel, Luke's gospel, it points forward. It's pointing forward into Luke's gospel for what Jesus, or excuse me, 
It points forward into the book of Acts for what Jesus is continuing to do today and wants to do through us. And so when we look back at the Gospels, what is it that Jesus did? 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied to his people, to Israel, saying that, hey, unto us a child is given, unto us a child is born, and that child is Jesus. It is in Jesus that God became a man, became man, and Jesus was given to you, given to us, to be the man or the woman that you could not be, and to do for you what you cannot do for yourself. His life without sinning, no sin of any kind, and that is righteousness. It's, it's that simple. That's righteousness. And Jesus did that. He accomplished that in his life. And even though Jesus was sinless, he allowed himself to be beaten, crucified on that cross as a sinner beaten for us, crucified for us. He took our place on that cross, suffering for, suffering for our sins, satisfying God's wrath towards sin. And do you remember, you all remember, most of you remember, what did, what did Jesus cry out when he died on that cross? Yeah. And in that moment, the skies darkened. And as Jesus bore the weight of our sins on that cross, the ground trembled. It shook. It shook violently. And I'm not making this stuff up, but the, the graves opened. Saints, believers, loved ones came out of the tombs and walked, walked with them, walked with the living. Then the curtain, the curtain of the temple, the curtain that they, they worshipped in was torn, torn in two, completely torn in two, from the top to the bottom. That tells us something that, uh, that was God and only God that could have done that. But that, that curtain that, that was in that temple that was separating God from man. Yeah, the priest could go back there, but it separated God from man, and now, through what Jesus Christ has done, we have direct access to God. Amen. And that's directly the work that Jesus Christ has, has done for us. And again, we can walk and talk with God. Enoch is my hero in Scripture. If we ha and guys have a hero in Scripture, Enoch is mine, and I know very little about him, but I know whatever he did, God just said, yeah, I, I want you. And uh, it's very encouraging to me. Uh, this Jesus is God and man. Jesus is an example for us, a real-life example of what God and man look like when they, when they exist together. Just man and God existing together in that peace and that oneness, even here on earth and even now. And so that's what Jesus did. When we, when we take the word began and we look back into the, the gospel, that's what Jesus did. And it was finished on that day. 
was finished on that cross and was finished for eternity. But as finished as Jesus was, as finished as his work of salvation was, it was only the beginning of what Jesus began to do and is going to continue to do through us, wants to do through us. Jesus had just ushered in a brand new day that came with it a brand new way to, to know God, to love God, to worship God, and to grow in godliness. And this is why the title of this message is In the Beginning, not, the, not the, the original creation, but the new creation created after Christ. In verse 2 then, point 1A in our outline, there's an outline in the, the bulletin there if you want it, but in, in verse 2, Point 1a is centered right on this verse, the, the point 1a in our outline. And in verse 2, Luke mentions that Jesus gave commandments. And he's not talking about the Ten Commandments. He's talking about two specific commandments that we'll see later in this text. But the one commandment was to go to Jerusalem and wait, wait for this gift. And then take that gift and go to the world. That's the next commandment, to go to the world and be a witness to Jesus. Luke is writing about Jesus during, in this text, in the entire text here. Jesus is, or Luke is writing about Jesus' 40-day post-resurrection ministry. After the resurrection, Jesus turns from his more public ministry to a more private ministry with these apostles and a handful of believers. For three years prior to the resurrection, Jesus pours himself into these men, teaching and training them to be selfless, godly leaders. Jesus displayed the power of humility and prayer and faith as he taught and he offered the kingdom of God to the Jews, to his people. It's what the, the, the apostles had visions of holding prominent roles in this kingdom, in what they thought would be their new kings newly formed court. It's what these men had been groomed for. And they were ready. They could taste it. They even had argued about who to have first and second place next to their king, right and left. They had argued about that. But as bold and faithful as these men thought they were when they're standing behind Jesus, these men were about to become immortalized in history for what a whole lot of knowledge, three years, teaching from the Lord. They were going to be immortalized in history for what a lot of knowledge and a little bit of faith looks like. And it's an example that should challenge us or scare us maybe. Then dropping down to verse 3, we come to point 1b in our outline. And we see Jesus, as we see Jesus after the resurrection here, he's turning his focus from the apostles to Jesus. Jesus continues teaching them the, the truths about the kingdom of God, just like the previous three years. But now Jesus' priority, his first priority during these 40 days, was the faith of these men. These once proud, bold followers of Jesus were stunned by his death. Weakened by their fear, they were anything but standing firm in their faith. And regardless of what, 
these men had been anticipating about their life in the coming kingdom, they had no idea of what lay behind, before them or the commitment it would take to live the life that they had been chosen and saved for. These men that had a front row seat as Jesus performed miracle after miracle, healing the sick, raising the dead, and silencing the Pharisees. These men that had witnessed the gospel lived out before their eyes. They scattered. They scattered at the crucifixion. Their faith had failed them, and now with their faith shook and shook, Jesus turns to them during these 40 days. He's convincing these men with many infallible truths. He presents himself with these infallible truths. And infallible here simply means unmistakable. Without doubt, in undisputable facts about Jesus. He's presenting himself to these men with, with these truths. Yes, you saw me. You saw the spear thrust into my side. You saw the sky go dark. You saw the graves open. And the, you felt the ground shake. But yes, you see me alive. Yes, I'm alive also. In Luke's Gospel, the last chapter of 24, that, that parallel scripture here, that we learn that we learn from it that Jesus not only presented himself with these truths, but that he also opened their eyes and their understanding to the Old Testament scripture so that they would know that the that, that, that Jesus' death, his suffering, and his resurrection, it was it wasn't plan B, it was but the plan from the beginning. Jesus knows the commitment that it'll take to follow him and to learn to love one another selflessly. It is not a life for the weak in faith. It's a life that it can't be lived out on the bench. Jesus taught by example that the Christian life is a commitment and it's a commitment that demands a conviction and that kind of a conviction cannot happen without an infallible faith. And if we, study the, if we study the life of Jesus, we see Jesus, we see him ministering. And he had a three-prong approach to the way he ministered. He convinced. We see him when he begins his public ministry. He had multitudes following him. He was doing miracle after miracle. And he, had, he was convincing people of who he was. And then he moves in and he begins to teach and convict with the word, the living word and the written word. He convicts. And then he calls. Then we see him calling his people into a life of commitment. Commitment was the goal from the beginning. But in his wisdom, Jesus knew that before we could commit, we'd have to be convicted. And before we could would be convicted, we'd have to be convinced. It's no difference for us today. We have to have a faith that'll stand in the face of this unbelieving world. And you know what I mean? Just look around us. We're bombarded 
Every generation, it's gotten harder and harder to raise our kids. It's always been harder for a Christian parent to raise their kids because you're battling the world. But it gets harder and harder in this world. We're, we exist in a very unbelieving world. And many pastors across the world, throughout the church over all time, have, have said, and they continue to say, to, to say today, that the greatest, the, the biggest weakness in the church is faith. It is unbelief and it is doubt. Those men, those men that physically walked with Jesus for three years, that saw the miracles firsthand and saw the sky go black, felt the earth shake, and saw the graves open, them guys, they buckled under the weight of an unbelieving world. Is there anyone, really, is there anyone in here that hasn't struggled with their faith? It, it seems like yesterday when I found myself saying, you know, I want there to be a God. I even believed that there was a God at times, and other times doubts would simply overwhelm me. I struggled. I struggled as a father. I struggled as a, as a husband. You can ask my kids. You can ask my wife. I struggled, and it had to do with this area of faith. I was ashamed, and I was afraid of those doubts. We live in a world that works at separating us from, from faith, that applauds doubt. And I praise God that I did not have to continue in that wavering back and forth. I struggled for years before I discovered that doubts were nothing more than unanswered questions in the church that I grew up in. If, I, if I'm not careful, it brings tears to my eyes, but they weren't good at answering questions. And I had them. I had written them down, and I was sent away. If you, if any of you, are struggling, even in a little way, please don't wait. In this church, there is somebody that can help you find the answers that you're looking for. And when you find that there are real answers, then your questions and your doubts can and will become your greatest strengths. No one has all the answers. But the reason that the ministries of apologetics, those ministries that defend our faith, the reason they're so popular is because they push back against those av that avalanche of doubt that this world has to offer. There's been some really good work done in the areas of, in those, those ministries, in the areas of origins and of historical archaeology, and I wish we had time to just go in there and look at some of those things. They, they light us up. They strengthen us. The studies of anthropology and biology and geology and the sciences of, of genetics, all these are full of evidences of God. It gets kind of hard not to believe. And if we're going to be witnesses of our Lord, if we're going to be witnesses of Jesus' love and his life, and we're not going to do it without faith, it's not going to happen. Then dropping down, we come to verses 4 and 5. 
And that's bringing us to point 2A in our outline. We understand that even though these, these men, they were not aware of it at, at this time, but Jesus' time with them was about to come to an end. Verse 4 signifies here, it's the start of the last day. And so Jesus gathers them together. And the word gathered or assembled, whatever, and in your version, version there, it gives us the idea of fondness, of closeness, and of warmth, and of trust. And in context, it shows the willingness of these people to follow their Lord. And so, Jesus gathers them close to tell them of the Father's promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit. The gift that they were to go to Jerusalem and wait for. It's the, the again, the sharing, God sharing himself with us. It's pouring himself out. It's the God in us. God indwelling in us. The baptism of John had been to prepare the people's heart to see and to recognize Jesus as their Messiah. And for the last 39 days, Jesus had made the faith of these men a priority to prepare them for this gift, this baptism of the Holy Spirit. The gift of God himself dwelling and dwelling in us in creating a oneness with God and with him, with us, between him and himself, creating that oneness with us. And that is why Jesus went to the cross. Don't miss that. That's why. If you read John chapter 17, you'll see Jesus' heartbeat. If you're, if you're down, just read that and understand that Jesus is thinking of you. And he's thinking of nobody other than you. Moments before, hours before, he's going to go and get beaten, brutalized. It's encouraging. It was. It, it, that's why Jesus went to the cross, but it was also, it was for the glory of God. When Jesus went to the cross, he displayed to the whole world the glory of God's holiness. Jesus did that by showing the length that God was willing to go to, to judge sin and uphold his holiness. Amen. And so when God himself went to that cross and died as man, the earth and the mountain, in the seas, they shook violently. And, and sin, that, that, that shaking of the earth, that was sin. Sin had been judged. And it brought justice to the unjust. That's us. It brought justice. God himself went to that cross to show his holiness. But Jesus went to that cross to earn a forgiveness of our sin. So that he could share that righteousness that he had earned while living on earth as a man. He did that so that we could earn, so that we could receive this, this promise, this gift of God, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the, just the God indwelling in us. God knows that what he has for us to do not only can't be done without faith, it can't be done without him. And him in us. On more than one occasion, God had promised, throughout in the Old Testament, God had promised more than once that he would pour out his soul, or excuse me, pour out his spirit and pour it out abundantly in his people, not on his people. And that is the gift 
That is the gift. That is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's what is being presented here in this, this text. That gift is for us. And that's why Jesus went to the cross, that he could freely give to anyone who recognizes their sin and repents, turns from it and believes and trusts Jesus for their salvation. It's so that we can glorify God in all that we do. He wants you to receive. He wants us to receive this gift and not just receive it, but embrace it. As we continue to verses 6 and 8, we come to our point in our outline, we come to 2b. And it's worth reminding ourselves that in the actual beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2, that we were created in God's image, holy, without sin, and with the ability to love God and to love others selflessly. That's not what we chose. We didn't choose righteousness. We chose pride. We told, chose self. And that image that we were created in became useless when God, because of our sin, withdrew his spirit from man. So are we now sitting here today in this church enjoying all that we have to enjoy our faith and the word and each other? Are we praising God for the pouring out of his spirit or are we taking it for granted? How aware are we of this gift that we've been given and its ability to change the way that we think, to change our words, change our actions, change the way we spend our time? Do we cherish the one who gave it to us? The one who took our beating and took our place on that cross. So the question really, why did, why did Jesus give us the, the power of himself within our own souls? Why did Jesus do that? The text explains it. It's, it's, he gave it so that we could be witnesses. How do we glorify God? By being witnesses of Jesus' life and his love, his work, his death, and then to point the world back to the resurrection. That's the hope of the world. It's the only hope we have. It's the only hope the world has. How long do we have to live in this world? How many loved ones do we have to lose? How much misery and how many broken homes do we have to see and how much selfishness do we have to experience? How many tears have to fall before we understand the preciousness of life and love? And that it's not about us. It's about others. Have we selflessly, selflessly embraced the call to be living witnesses of our Lord, of his love and his life, or are we taking it for granted? Let's just look at a minute at Hebrews. You don't have to turn there. But in the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, the, the chapter's just full. God just gives us this, this list of, of men and women, of the un, just un, unreal faith, infallible faith. 
Abraham, by faith Abraham, by faith Sarah, by faith Enoch, by faith Moses. And after he gets done with, with this list, he then follows up with that in verses 32 through 34 in, in, in the same chapter of Hebrews, verse, chapter 11. In reading from that, what more shall I say for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson, of Japheth, of also of David and of Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms and worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of a sword, and out of weakness were made strong and became valiant in battle and turned the flight of armies, turned to flight the armies of aliens. So what then is our witness? That's what, what is our witness of God within us? What's our testimony of faith? Jesus has already conquered the worlds, the kingdoms of this world. And Romans 8.37 reminds us that we are conquerors through Christ who loves us. And so, yeah, we are conquerors over sin and death. And we're, we're conquerors through Christ and the work that he did for us. It's not anything that we did. It's not our righteousness. It's not our work. But we're already conquerors through Christ, but are we living testimonies? We're called, yeah, we can be living in the Spirit. We're told if we're living in the Spirit, if we have that new life, we're enjoying that, that peace with God, well, we need to also be walking in the Spirit. Are we living testimonies of the love of God and of the passion and the commitment of Jesus? And now, so now to finish these, these thoughts, let's look, let's look at verses 9 through 11. They bring us to the reality of what this should look like. And this is where point three in our outline begins. Remember verse four? It began on the last day, last day of Jesus' 40 days in this, this post-resurrection ministry. When he gathers them together, that was verse four. Well, verse nine tells us that when he had gathered them together and he told them of the promised gift, its power and its purpose, that while they were watching, while they were walking and listening to the Lord, they just, Jesus just, he left. He just, just I guess, just took off, just rose up into heaven. And you just think about it. They had just asked Jesus if he was going to, I mean, minutes before in verse 6, he asks Jesus, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom now? Or what? You know, not that they got an answer, but this was their mindset. And it's probably the last thing on their mind that Jesus was going to leave. And they just stood there. I know if I was standing there, my mouth would have been wide open, just gawking at that, gazing up at that. And that's when God sent two angels. I don't know if he sent them just right behind him or off to the side. But they broke the silence by, 
by saying this in verse 11. Men of Galilee, why are you standing up? Why are you, why are you standing gazing up there? Which, this Jesus who left, he, he's going to come back in the same way. And that reminds me just, just briefly, that reminds me when I was young. And my dad would leave. He would leave for the day. And he would leave me with quite a lot to do sometimes. And it's, it's similar also in the fact that my dad worked for himself. And I did not know when dad was coming home. I didn't know if it was going to be early or late. And all my mom had to do generally was to light a fire underneath, was, to, was to, to remind me that dad might come home early. He's backing up there. Jesus just taken off. What would we done in their place? After Jesus leaves, after the angel spoken, what would have we done? In the text, if we were to continue reading in this text, we would see that these guys assume as the angels had spoken, they did just as Jesus had commanded them, and they turned around, they went right down that big hill into Jerusalem, where they were to wait for their gift. And why Jerusalem? It's where they were supposed to begin their lives as a witness, to witness Jesus' love. That's why, that's why Jerusalem, that's where they were to begin. And as they came down that big hill, this is where historical archaeology is so fun. And uh, I was spent a couple of days just reading all I could find on, on Jesus and where he was crucified and what do we know about that. But probably, quite possibly, as they came down that big hill, that big hill called the Mount of Olives, they probably passed the point not very far within eyeshot of where Jesus had been brutally murdered. They were passing that point. They would have been looking down that hill, also right over the eastern, eastern gate into the city of Jerusalem where those that had just killed and murdered Jesus was waiting. They were waiting down there. That's where they were. Crucify him, crucify him. They probably remembered those words. They were called to be witnesses. And the word martus here, the word witness, we say witness. The word martus at that point meant, there's different definitions, but here it means to live passionately, to live with compassion for the world and for your enemies. We use the word martyr today, same word, and we use it in the way that we do today because of the way that these people lived out their call to be martyrs. As challenging as a Christian life can be and as hard as it might be to totally and purposefully witness Christ to an unbelieving world, today very few of us are being asked to physically die for Christ with the blessings and the freedoms the protections that we have here, 
Jesus isn't asking us to die, not right now, not physically. To self, yes, but not physically. He's just simply asking us if we'll live for him. Will we? Or is he, is he second place in our life? Are we witnesses? What are we doing with that gift? If you're a parent, you know the joy it is to watch your child use that gift that you've poured yourself into. In this case, it's Jesus pouring himself into us. Do we really think we have? If I had taken a poll, including me, forget me of being up here. If I was down there and somebody came in and, and they gave us a poll and they said, hey, here's paper and pencil, write down a paragraph on how to witness to Christ. Many of us, including myself, probably would have written down the Romans Road. How do I give the gospel? How do I witness? How do I tell somebody about the gospel? And so do we really have the right? I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but do we really have the idea, the understanding of what it means to be a witness? The text tells us that day that Jesus began with 120 people in Jerusalem that day. When they went down that hill, when went into that city, oh, there were 120 people that came together and they were God's people, Jesus' people. And that's us, you guys. I mean, look around. We average 120 people. Every Sunday, we're averaging 120 people here approximately. And that's us. And I can't help but ask if that was us, if that was me in that group, would Jesus' church, if that was us, that day in Jerusalem, we just went down that big hill, would we have gone in there? Would have I gone in, into that city? Would have I thought twice about being a witness? But I can't help but ask myself if that was us, would Jesus' church have spread around the world in the way that it did? Do we have the same passion? I'm asking myself, I know I'm looking at you guys, but I'm asking myself, do we have the same passion for others that Christ has for us? If we didn't know Scripture, if we didn't have Scripture, if all you knew was me, and all I knew was you, how would we define Jesus? How would we define the love and the life of Jesus? You know, it was pointed out to me that the book of Acts, it doesn't close. It doesn't have an ending. And it doesn't take long to figure that out, to figure out why. Jesus wants us to finish that. He wants us to finish the book. And not with words, not with a pen, not with a pencil, but by surrendering our hearts to this gift of God and allowing it to change the way we think and the way that we do our lives, the way that we spend our time. Are we convinced and are we convicted? Are we committed to embracing this gift of God and its purposes. What are we doing with this gift? Lord, I'll just end in this with a prayer. And I just, Lord, I just 
I ask you please to use this text to convict us with a great commitment, Lord, to your call for us to be witnesses. And help us, Lord, to, to understand the, the value of the one and others as we do this. And that we not just embrace you, Lord, and your gift, but we're embracing each other. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen.